This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Each week, government executives and thought leaders join me for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. I examine key questions that, when answered cogently, can provide us with a better understanding of the business of government. How can technology transform the way government does business? How can the federal government reduce costs and improve services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies? And what are those specific cost reduction strategies? Today, I'll explore these questions and the recent IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, with Dan Chenick, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, and Haynes Cooney. Dan, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you, as always. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Haynes, welcome. First time. Thank you very much, Michael. Appreciate it. Maybe not the the last, hopefully. Hopefully not. So, Dan, I want to talk about uh, the recent uh, TCC report, the Technology CEO Council report, The Government We Need. What was the purpose of the report? What prompted its development? So the idea is that companies over the last several decades have modernized their operations in ways that have achieved significant savings in very large enterprises that are often multinational in scale. Government is similarly complex and in many cases more complex, but uh, governments have traditionally not adopted technology to achieve these kinds of savings as quickly as companies have. There's been pockets of modernization in government that have worked well. The, the Technology CEO Council, which is a, a group of leading companies, IBM uh, and several other companies uh, are involved, took a look at this t- concept several years ago around how could government modernize to be to achieve the efficiencies that private sector enterprise have done and produced a report um, six years ago uh, called One Trillion Reasons, um, which identified ways that the government could, could drive significant savings over a decade. This report's an, essentially an update and bringing forward those ideas into the uh, further into the 21st century with the advent of new technologies, new opportunities, and new uh, practices and lessons learned that government can apply. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the center uh, recently as well uh, published a companion piece called um, Transforming Government Through Technology. Why did we why did we decide to do a piece, a standalone piece, and how does it complement the report? Are they basically the same reports? So they're they're the same topics, and the reports draw on on the same content. Uh, we thought, and we worked with the Technology CEO Council uh, staff uh, and team to say that you, a companion report that's sort of shorter, um, sort of summary form that can be handed out in uh, and sort of get to the issues. Uh, the, the TCC report really provides a lot of the depth and detail. The center report's more of a summary that you can sort of get into it as a decision maker uh, at the first instance. Wonderful. Great. So, uh, Haynes, the report, um, both the TCC report and our report, um, assert that I think um, 
sustainable cost reductions of more than a trillion dollars over 10 years if the government adopts private sector uh, strategies. Before we delve into each one of these strategies, can you give us a high-level overview of each? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. And and really part of our focus on making the recommendations in this uh, set of reports is really about implementation and implementability. And so we wanted to frame them in uh, a way that was familiar uh, to government leaders thinking about how they have executed programs in the past. And so there are really sort of four categories uh, that we've used. Uh, the, the first one is really about imp- improving resource management. So leveraging cross-agency opportunities, thinking about integration across domains and networks, thinking about consolidation of core services. The second area is around improving government decision-making. So how are we more effectively leveraging available data uh, and making better informed choices? Uh, The third is investing in modern technology. Um, Strategic investments are key to achieving some of the long-term cost efficiencies and delivering the performance and services that are expected from a modern, efficient enterprise. Uh, Citizens uh, have come to expect a certain level of service from anyone, whether that's a private sector or the government, and the government has some room to catch up in some of those areas. And then the fourth is really around optimization of processes. So uh, it's critical that the government recognizes and reinforces a need to continually uh, reinforce and improve processes. It's not a one-time thing. Uh, This is building in the flexibility and agility to continue to keep up with technological trends. And so across those four areas, we've highlighted some specific things, and we can probably get into the detail there. Yeah, before we get into certain strategies that we're talking about, shared service or what have you, why is, um, how does taking enterprise perspective factor into this effort? Why is it so important? Yeah, that's a great question. It really highlights the importance of meaningful coordination across agencies uh, and taking that enterprise perspective. And I think that's a theme that we've woven in throughout this report. It's really looking across traditional silos, traditional agency boundaries to take advantage of some of the opportunities that are presented there. Uh, Nearly every complex problem requires cross-agency coordination, and nearly every problem facing the government today is a complex problem. And so we want to be thinking at that broad level. Uh, Data visibility is a major issue across the government. Uh, There are lots of data silos, multiple parallel uh, supply chains, redundant processes, inventory, local management, uh, and so on. So it's, it's not just a data issue here, though that's certainly part of it. Uh, But how do we use data effectively and build the analytical capabilities that help us gain some insight? Um, In terms of specific examples, um, there's a private sector example of a company that we reference in the report. Uh, They were facing some tight budgets, and though they'd optimized within individual functional areas of their business, uh, they were still running into a lot of challenges. It was only when they sort of pulled pulled back and looked at their enterprise-wide view they recognized that as they looked at things like inventory and supply chain and transportation uh, it, in a single view, that they were able to make decisions that they never would have been able to justify specifically within one of those silos. Uh, ultimately, those, that kind of perspective enabled them to save over a billion dollars. Um, at the federal level, you can think about an agency like FEMA. Uh, FEMA is able to optimize their routing, make tactical decisions, and pre-position goods uh, in the event that they can see certain types of weather activity or other types of uh, emergencies uh, on the horizon, and that enterprise view permits that. Well, that's a great point. So, uh, Dan, uh, would you define for us shared services, uh, um, and um, how does it work? What are the benefits realized by the use of shared services? 
Sure. Shared services is a concept that's been adopted in industry um, for several decades as companies have modernized. They've, they've looked to basically reduce uh, the need for separate technology, separate financial management, separate HR uh, on the administrative side, um, uh, operations, technology process operations. So they basically share those operations across their operating divisions. The federal government about 15 years ago actually started down the road toward shared services by designating certain lines of business that are similar to those administrative back office functions, predominantly the human resources and financial management. Um, and uh, the idea is to say that agencies don't need to build their own uh, financial management systems or their own HR systems and processes that they can go to a provider who can provide that at scale, thus giving better service because they're providing uh, similar service across a broad range of customers for a good cost uh, and enabling them to redirect their limited budgets uh, away from having to recreate redundant administrative support stores and can put those more toward their mission. You guys, in the report, it outlines a couple of examples in the federal space. Um, the HRLOB. Could you give, give us uh, highlight those for us? Absolutely. So the Office of Personnel Management has led uh, over the last 15 years uh, a migration across federal HR systems uh, following both sort of mandatory uh, uh, processes and systems that are being used that are delivered by both Public sector providers, meaning agencies that are that are expert in understanding the federal rules and and procedures for hiring, payment, uh, retire, health insurance, all of the things that make an HR experience uh, happen, as well as private sector experts in doing so. Uh, in addition, uh, OPM has helped uh, to drive a consolidation around payroll. Um, over the last uh, 15 years, which really has brought down uh, the cost of delivering checks to all federal employees who get paid every week for what they do uh, significantly and has made that process much more effective. So staying on the shared services concept, um, what is the 21st century delivery model? Right. We talk about that in the report. Uh, basically, the idea is that uh, in, in the first phase of shared services, you um, automate across a administrative processes. So you might have uh, providers who are, are offering uh, different solutions for financial management, different solutions for HR, different solutions for grants. If you think about it, uh, all of those functions sort of rest on a, on a platform that can be shared in in. Uh, a common way. So HR and finance and grants all share a lot of common experiences. We call it sort of the 80% solution. In other words, 80% of what agencies do really is relatively common. It may be 70, it may be 90, but we, we use 80 as a proxy. And then the idea for the 21st century is that you can use technology to really standardize across agencies, save a lot of money, and then enable the tailoring for that 20%, which is really where agencies need to focus on their mission, have those standard processes apply to that particular mission, whether they have workhorses in the field, whether they're a global globally focused agency like the State Department, whether they're a service providing agency like the Department of Veterans Affairs. So each agency does need to adjust that 80%, but they don't need to recreate the 80%. How can technology transform the way government does business? We will ask Dan Chenick, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, and Haynes Cooney, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
What are the strategic priorities for the Defense Health Agency's component acquisition executive? How is DHA changing the way it acquires products and services? Join host Michael Keegan next week on the Business of Government Hour as he explores these questions with Dr. Barkley P. Butler, component acquisition executive at the Defense Health Agency. Next week on the Business of Government Hour. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dan Chenick, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, and Haynes Cooney. Dan, the second strategy outlined in the report focuses on fraud and improper payment uh, prevention. What is an improper payment within the federal context, and what's the current state picture of improper payments in the federal government? So this has been an issue in the government for for decades. The, a, a lot of what the government does is take tax dollars and provide it as needed services um, for health care, for housing, for education. Uh, and it does so through a series of programs and a series of agencies. Um, and, and it spends a lot of time trying to understand who is eligible uh, and how much money are they eligible for and when should they get that money so they can pay their school bill, so they can pay a medical bill, et cetera. So understanding who is eligible, uh, understanding how much they're eligible for and understanding when they need to get the money matters a lot. And, and we're talking billions uh, and really hundreds of billions of dollars of the federal budget uh, across both discretionary programs, meaning programs that are funded every year by Congress, as well as what we call mandatory programs like Social Security or Medicaid, which are funded based on need. Um, and those are very important programs. Millions of Americans depend on those dollars. And getting that right matters a lot to the lives of Americans. It also matters a lot for taxpayers to make sure that we're not um, allocating money improperly to the wrong person at the wrong amount or at the wrong time. And those would be improper payments. So, Haynes, um, how can the government take advantage of advanced analytical models to predict and prevent fraud? And perhaps you could highlight some of the positive examples in this area. Certainly. And I think this, again, brings brings us back to some of the enterprise-wide opportunity and seeking patterns across programs and agencies, thinking about some of the data related to the eligibility criteria that Dan just referenced, uh, whether or not folks are eligible, whether or not folks uh, are due for certain types of benefits, and also keeping in mind the timeliness factor, that uh, many of these benefits are very time-sensitive, and it's important for the folks who, who need the benefits to be receiving those in a timely fashion. So thinking about uh, identification of patterns in data that we see uh, and using things like cognitive technologies to anticipate uh, what kind of behaviors or indicators there may be in the data that would bring out uh, a record that you might even flag. doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, uh, but it is something that uh, requires a little further investigation and, and helps focus actual human decision makers' attention and time on those specific records. In terms of specific examples, uh, 
at the state level. Uh, we've had a lot of success uh, with the New York State Tax Authority. Uh, they've used predictive modeling to flag about $1.2 billion worth of claims uh, that may be improper or questionable and allows their, uh, their leaders to take a look at those claims a little more deeply before those payments are made. Um, and that's uh, up to about 20% of the total payments that they were examining uh, were flagged in that manner. So that's a pretty significant chunk and something that in the report we cite as, you know, if that ratio, even a fraction of that ratio were to be scaled up to the federal level, that's quite an opportunity for savings. Um, the IRS uh, in 2014 has a return review program that identified about a million fraudulent claims. And so, again, at the federal level, similar story where flagging those requests for returns, uh, flagging those claims uh, for refunds, and making sure that the proper attention is paid there uh, rather than boiling the ocean. It's really focusing decision makers' attention. And then in terms of capabilities, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, CMS, they have a fraud detection service in place. Uh, but they're one of the few agencies that really has as sophisticated technology in that area uh, as they do. And thinking about how that kind of capability could be either shared or developed in other agencies is really an opportunity worth looking into, I uh, think, because multiple agencies starting to build out that kind of technology is really going to be something that not only is beneficial at the individual agency level, but if there are economies of scale, uh, we start to learn faster. We start to learn from some of that enterprise-wide perspective and maybe discover some things that we wouldn't necessarily have thought about uh, purely within a single agency's context. Decisions based on uh, better use of data and evidence have clear benefits. What are they, Dan? Um, so really, it's about getting the right information, the right service to the right people at the right time. And that can be um, an individual decision where a government caseworker is understanding sort of what an individual or family needs. It can be a programmatic decision where they're making program design decisions based on, all right, this level of people in this part of the country has uh, a certain uh, spending pattern that they need to have to, to basically uh, live, to, to buy food, to, to have housing, to have education, and then understanding sort of what the financial needs are from federal programs that can supplement income, uh, that can get those people uh, working, get them on their feet, et cetera. So there's lots of different ways that data can uh, be done to make programs more efficient as well as to make the uh, life of the program recipient, the, the beneficiary of the government service, uh, better. Mm -hmm. So how can uh, cognitive computing systems and capabilities help agencies transform data into insight, and what are the potential benefits? So one of the great benefits of cognitive computing, as, as Haynes pointed out, is that it, it enables technology to supplement human decision-making in ways that you, we could never have done before. It can allow a person to basically see if somebody's coming into their office for and asking about a government benefit, the person may make a decision uh, based on what they know, um, and based on sort of the fact that they've re reviewed the, the rules of that program in the last week. With the advent of cognitive computing, with cognitive tools, they can basically look across all of the information about programs, about how those programs have been applied, about how they've been applied differentially across states, across income groups, and have that information at their fingertips to make a much more personalized and effective decision in real time uh, because they've taken advantage of these technologies that enable them to look at large amounts of analytical data, structured, unstructured data, and, and really come, come up with a decision that's much more informed for the person. That's great. 
So in terms of IT maintenance, uh, operations and maintenance, O&M, how can the federal government save by implementing cognitive monitoring uh, technologies? Haynes? So we, we think even conservatively that applying cognitive technologies to operations and maintenance could save 10% of those O&M budgets. Um, and thinking about that when you apply it to the magnitude of federal O&M budgets uh, really reveals some pretty significant savings opportunities. Uh, applied to the DOD O&M budget alone, uh, we'd be looking at about $20 billion in savings a year coming from the application of cognitive technologies. And, and why that's significant, uh, O&M is by far and away the largest chunk of investment on the IT side uh, for every agency. Uh, and so that leaves very little money for new strategic investments, various types of modernization, and, and so on. And so reducing the amount that's spent on O&M frees up uh, what would be a significant addition to those new strategic investment opportunities and really gives agencies a significant amount of new flexibility uh, when it comes to some of the, the opportunities that we've highlighted in this document. So think, when we start thinking about investments, uh, you need to free up the money to make those investments and savings in O&M are, are the way to do that. And you, and you point out in the report that it's, it's an imperative that the government continues to transform into a modern, efficient enterprise. What role does investing in modern technology factor into this effort. Absolutely. So so picking up on the same theme there, you know, GAO has reported that 75% of federal spending in IT in 2016 was allocated to O&M. Um, and this is O&M on legacy systems. If we think about legacy systems, even a four-year-old server uh, these days provides only about 4% of the performance of a brand new server. Uh, and, and at the same time, is consuming more energy. So we're investing in supporting legacy technologies as they become obsolete very quickly. As we talked about a little bit earlier, the, the government is facing demands for uh, quality, speed, availability, security, and usability of, of, of services uh, to keep up with what uh, citizens experience in the private sector. Uh, investment in new technology really enables that. Um, New technologies support more efficient IT operations that are really in line with a lot of the goals that we see agencies laying out for their IT going forward. And these are around various technologies, cloud, mobile, analytics, and so on. Uh, and they also bring flexibility and interoperability. And that interoperability in particular is, is key to that enterprise perspective that we've talked about a little bit. One study at the state level suggested that for every dollar that was uh, invested in new IT rather than O&M, uh, that the state could save uh, $3.49 across uh, all of their expenditures. And so it's quite a return on investment uh, if that were to be able to be realized at the federal level as well. And you think about a shift of even 5% of uh, the federal IT O&M budget uh, would be about $11 billion a year in savings at that ratio. So thinking about a progression from IT managed services to application modernization to a migration to new environments, including the cloud, is a path that really brings a lot of new opportunities with it. Uh, so Dan, you know, as a follow-up, uh, federal IT spend is at an all-time high. What can the federal government do in this area to realize cost savings and cost reductions? And would you give us examples of where this is demonstrated? Sure. Well, and the IT spending that Haynes described isn't budgeted in, in a traditional sense where you've got a budget line. It's really a, a buildup of agency spending over time. That, that, that all-time high figure of almost $90 billion now um, is an aggregation of agency spending plans. 
um, that they come up with. And it's drawn from a variety of different accounts. So if you were in the private sector, you'd probably have a capital budget that you would identify uh, the technology with. To apply and achieve the efficiencies that Haynes is describing, you also need to use analytics to understand where's the IT spend happening, um, what's your current spending, and down the road, where is the savings arising from that spending so you can capture that savings. Um, there's a lot of discussion now about how to reform federal uh, budgeting and uh, uh, basically understanding how the effects of those IT investments re are captured over time and that agencies can track that that savings and that cost avoidance so they can uh, de devote it to deficit reduction, devote it to mission spending, et cetera. Um, it's a complicated question because it involves um, budget scoring rules and uh, involves discussions with the Office of Management Budget, with the Congressional Budget Office. Um, agencies, uh, even within the uh, the system as we have it today, have been achieving the kinds of modernization that, agent, that Haynes described. One example is the Federal Communications Commission that took its um, infrastructure to the cloud uh, about a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, uh, and is now operating in a commercial cloud environment and reaping and enjoying the benefits and cost avoidance uh, of that. Uh, the General Services Administration has a number of programs where they are uh, applying modern technology to efficiency in the real estate, real property, travel, uh, fleet management arena across the suite of services that they provide uh, to achieve efficiencies. So, uh, Dan, uh, cybersecurity is another area where there could be some cost avoidance, co cost reduction, cost savings. I I'd like to talk about it. Uh, uh, what is the average consolidated total cost of a data breach, and what strategies do you outline in the report uh, that uh, agencies can leverage to reduce cost and avoid this stuff? So. One of the studies that the report cited talked about an average cost of about $4 million per data breach. Um, uh, and there are other industry estimates that are uh, at varying levels. But that's probably a, a good industry standard. Um, and this obviously affects you know real people in, in addition to uh, people losing uh, their information, as we've seen from large data breaches both in government and in the private sector, um, there's also real cost for the organization to recover that information, to provide credit monitoring, to uh, bolster their systems after the fact when if they had spent a little bit of money on security up front, they might have had a better chance of not having the breach occur in, in the first place. Um, one of the uh, recommendations in the report is really that analytics can be a, a very powerful way to share uh, information, uh, to discover what's happening in the cyber world in terms of, of what's happening on agency networks, how the agency can share information with the private sector, uh, and how it can use cognitive technologies in a similar way as what we described before for service provision to understand sort of patterns in, in cyberspace and to respond to those patterns quickly and effectively. Haynes, you know, with with cyber, you know, obviously the mobility, the fact that uh, mobile is taking on a life of its own, and we're doing everything uh, from mobile self services to supporting infrastructure. So, what um, what cost reductions are associated with uh, a good mobile strategy? Well, we, you know, mobile strategy, and we actually resisted affixing a specific number to the mobile okay. the mobile in this in these reports, and in part because it's still a, a really new and emerging area, and we see a lot of private sector benefits. I think we can all relate to the shift to mobile in a variety of different services and the way that we interact uh, both with private sector uh, entities and with the government. Uh, increasingly, we see at the city level all kinds of uh, citizen engagement at platforms that allow citizens to interact with their uh, local governments, either to help identify issues uh, or to get services completed. 
we think about improved services. You think about helping the government sort of optimize the service delivery and identify some of the process improvement opportunities. At the federal level, we think about mobile being uh, particularly applicable for those agencies that have a lot of folks deployed in the field. So if you think about an agency like FEMA or the FDA, uh, who have folks working with citizens or with businesses uh, throughout the country, giving those field representatives the information and the access and the uh, ability to deliver services or resources in the field in real time and to maintain a connection uh, to the databases of the agencies, to the insights uh, that are gained throughout the organization, that's really powerful. Uh, so improved services is absolutely something that we are already starting to see. Uh, untangling the dollar savings of that is something that I think we're still working on, but we're very excited to see where that goes. I want to stay with you on uh, the other th- the other strategy you mentioned, which is the Internet of Things. What are the substantial cost savings of adopting this technology and uh, fostering interoperability among systems? Interoperability is really huge. Uh, we, this ties back to the beginning. We talked about enterprise uh, gaining the insights from throughout the organization uh, and from all different levels and really uh, not just relying on sort of traditional collected data and databases and traditional processes, but also figuring out ways to incorporate citizen insights and other types of sort of unstructured data sources that, that uh, come through cognitive technologies. Uh, there are estimates out there that say incorporating IoT could save trillions of dollars worldwide uh, if applied in the right way and if we avoid security breaches, uh, if we move away from a lot of traditional infrastructure models. Um, go fully to the cloud, uh, models like that. Um, This is another area where in our reports, we didn't try to stick a specific number uh, against IoT, uh, in part because it's it's sort of baked into all of the other areas. It's really a a decision-making support and enabler, um, and it it really helps uh, for everything from the process to the services and we think about uh, specific applications, maybe around public safety, public services, water, even parking. Uh, some of the things are seemingly mundane, but big opportunities when it comes to effective management and effective interaction with citizens. Mm-hmm. So, Dan, we talked about cyber. We talked about mobile strategies. We talked about the inter- Internet of Things. I want to talk about something more concrete, the federal supply chain and acquisition. What are some of the um, realized cost reductions or avoidances or savings that you outline in the report? So, in, again, in the private sector, they've taken a look at their supply chains, and they've applied these kinds of technologies to really both simplify the process and to make more visible where the points of interface are in the shipment of goods and, and the delivery of services. And uh, across uh, many different engagements have discovered that by using these kinds of cognitive technologies, they can save upwards of 10 or more percent. So we, kind of, we took the low end of that range uh, and basically said that if the government adopted private sector best practice, it could improve its efficiency of the procurement system, um, not necessarily... Uh, spend less money, but but reallocate that money so you're spending it more on mission and less on the process of procurement, uh, and that's really how we came up with the with the estimate of that. Mm-hmm. Haynes mentioned earlier in our conversation the importance of implementing a lot of these strategies. So, Dan. Um, what were some of the suggestions outlined in your report? Right. Well, so for the procurement uh, issue, 
one of the areas that we talk about is something specific called, that, that we're referring to as cognitive category management. Uh, and we've actually done some follow-up work on that um, in the procurement arena to talk about you could use technology to take what the government center on category management, which we've talked about on this show and, and the center has talked about as well, uh, and apply these cognitive techniques to enable the government to save uh, you know, a significant portion of that $450 billion. So that's one example of, a, of, of an implementation arena. Uh, uh, other areas that the the report talked about were more procedural mm-hmm. um, things like um, empower, but but important things like hiring a strong federal chief information officer hiring strong chief information officers in agencies and empowering them uh, to make decisions that can direct IT spending in ways that uh, can achieve efficiencies taking an enterprise perspective that we talked about earlier, um, using cross-agency councils like the Chief Information Officers Council and making them uh, action-oriented in terms of their ability to work together on behalf of the taxpayer to create program efficiencies and effectiveness. Uh, understanding how to bring in industry best practices in an ongoing fashion. So this report was a point in time, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's always going to be the the uh, evolution of technology is getting more rapid uh, e- each day. Uh, and so understanding how to know what's happening in the commercial space and how to leverage that, adapt that as appropriate for, for use in, in government is something that's very important. Uh, and then finally, understanding what to do first, mm-hmm. understanding how to use uh, the uh, tools like the budget process, the, the fiscal 2018 budget, which is being uh, discussed even now. Uh, OMB presented its initial budget proposal uh, last month, uh, and then sequencing those steps, all of the steps that we've talked about uh, here, in a way where you identify the achievable um, and identify a near-term strategy, and then also have in, in mind the longer-term steps that are needed to achieve lasting success. This is great. So what's next for the insights and, and the recommendations outlined in these reports? What's how are you getting the message out? What are you doing to make sure that these things are listened to? So we're working in partnership with the Technology CEO Council and with our colleagues across uh, IBM and uh, and the centers having discussions in a variety of different locations. We're talking with congressional staff, talking with uh, administration officials, with OMB, um, uh, with uh, the uh, new uh, officials who are coming in and taking leadership roles in the new administration to try to basically help them understand here are the private sector practices that they may be familiar with in their in their worlds before they came to government, and here's a pathway to adopt them in government so that you can really achieve the successes in ways that are um, uh, in keeping with government rules, procedures, and the unique circumstances of individual agencies. Terrific. Dan Haynes, thanks for coming on. It's been great to have you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. What about cross-agency priority goal progress in category management and infrastructure permitting? We'll explore these questions and so much more with my colleague, John Kaminsky senior fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government, when the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation 
to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Established by the GPRA Modernization Act of 2010, cross-agency priority goals, CAP goals, are a tool used by the federal government to accelerate progress on a limited number of presidential priority areas where implementation requires active collaboration between multiple agencies, overcoming organizational barriers to achieve better performance than one agency can achieve on its own. Set or revised at least every four years, CAP goals include outcome-oriented goals that cover a limited number of cross-cutting policy areas, as well as management goals focused on management improvement across the federal government. Today, I will explore the importance of cross-agency collaboration in general with my colleague, John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. John, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. What is category management and how does it work? Well, category management is something that's actually uh, used extensively in the private sector uh, and by governments across the world to better manage their common purchases. So what it is is you define a clear strategy for spending on common items or services within a category. A uh, category could be IT, it could be in human resources, it, it can be real estate, it could be travel, etc. And within that category, you can, by tying things together, leverage better buying power uh, across that entire category by educating the buyers, which are in the individual agencies, with what are the best practices or the best prices and the best contract terms to use. And uh, you could reduce the total cost of ownership and other things like that. The, the UK has used this extensively as well as uh, uh, major companies like our own. By moving to this approach, you wind up consolidating, having fewer contracts, fewer variation, and you're able to uh, leverage the government's buying power in a way that you couldn't do before. Uh, some of the studies conservatively say you can have efficiencies of 75 to, to 12%. Some people say much higher. Uh, what's significant is that this is uh, based on, you know, something like $270 billion. So 12% is a big bucket of money, yeah. Um, there, one study said that the federal government could save up to $40 billion a year uh, if it moved widely and, and, and adopted this. So, so that's why the shift from strategic sourcing to category management and to rely on experiences that have been developed uh, elsewhere have been very useful. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Federal Category Management Initiative and how it was launched and a little bit more about its um, governance aspects of the sure. effort? This was launched in, in uh, 2014 uh, when Anne Rung became the head of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. So. When she was confirmed by the Senate and took this role, this was sort of like her uh, key initiative. And it uh, was taken from just being a key initiative of hers to something that became a government-wide cross-agency priority goal. And so that lifted the, the uh, profile of this. 
And as a cross-agency priority goal, it receives uh, top-level attention on a quarterly basis from, like, the head of OMB and, and people in the White House. So this really put a lot of oomph behind it and created a category management leadership council, which was sort of derived from a, a strategic sourcing leadership council. And in addition, the CFOs from each of the 24 largest agencies were asked to designate a single point of contact. So you have this council, you have these contacts, single points of contact in each of the major agencies to coordinate the government-wide efforts. What they, the council did is it identified 10 super categories that account for more than $270 billion worth of spending. And these are, you know, facility construction, travel, medical supplies, transportation, things that are being done in different agencies independently. And and a career executive uh, was designated as a uh, category manager for each one of the 10. And so these people developed a cadre of experts on what are the expertise that's needed for contract provisions, et cetera, around, say, facilities construction. And they identified key performance metrics so that these metrics could be used across agency boundaries. And they talked to the top suppliers in each of these categories to find out what was sort of the coming next. And so they could be ready. And this is much more uh, expertise that could be developed individually by each agency. So the agencies can now turn to these 10 categories. And within the 10 categories, there's a total of 50 subcategories that uh, have their own leads and have their own sets of experts uh, that serve as executive agencies that may buy on behalf of other agencies and the category. And, and in addition, GSA created on its website something called the Acquisition Gateway, which is a one-stop source for procurement contract officials within the government to find out What's going on in each of these 50 or top 10 categories? Who are the experts? What are the contract terms that I should be using? Who are the best suppliers and buyers? And, and so what it does is it creates this, this uh, expertise that, that uh, reaches across agency boundaries that never existed before. So uh, what are the benefits? Uh, what benefits can be realized by simply reducing the review process for major infrastructure projects? Well, there is an advocacy group called Common Good that claims that there's a six-year delay in major construction projects that cost the nation $3.7 trillion in just because of the delay, because if it takes something that could be done in one year and it takes 10 years or six years or whatever to complete it, uh, then th this is unnecessary costs that are in incurred. Um, what's interesting is that civil engineers say that the total cost of infrastructure deficit is $1.7 So the cost of delay is more than the cost of actually delivery uh, of what needs to be done. So this group recommends cutting the review process to two years by streamlining, which is a code word for some advocacy groups as you're going to cut my uh, particular regulation that protects the environment or historical structures or whatever it might be uh, in the environment or something. So the initiative that the Obama administration undertook is we're not going to reduce the requirements. We're just going to coordinate them. And they concluded that if they coordinated without eliminating regulations, that you could go from six years to three years. So that gets you pretty much a long way where 
uh, the this uh, this common good group was saying, oh, it needs to be two years, and you needed to cut all these regulations. So so the effort was let's not try to put up roadblocks of just stream uh, of improving. So that's why they don't want to call it streamlining because that seems to be the code word for cutting regulations, <laughs> uh, but ra- or, or short circuiting them. But rather, it's how do you just uh, it, it modernize? Is what they're talking about. Yeah, and I want to get into some of the. Um ways they measure this. So what is the Federal Infrastructure Permitting Dashboard, and how was it used as a tool? Uh, how has it been expanded? Well, what, what happened was, again, back in the 2009 uh, effort, they were sort of doing one-off, how do we improve this project? How, and there were about 50 projects that they were trying to track. And so they, uh, they put them all into a single dashboard so you could track them all in one place. And the president in 2011 signed this directive that led to piloting of this uh, uh, infrastructure permit dashboard that tracked progress on, on specific projects. So that was basically the start. The next thing that happened is that based on the lessons from the pilot projects, the president in 2012 signed an executive order that expanded the use of of the dashboard for additional projects and and different kinds of things. Uh, So it includes rails and waterways and roads and renewable energy uh, projects and stuff like that. And and, and then in 2013, there was another presidential directive. So there's just – there has to be – constant pressure from the top to get these 18 agencies to work together. And in that directive, he created the steering committee to come up with a plan for how in in the long term. So instead of dealing with everything on one-off heroic efforts, they were going to create a systemic approach to do this as a way of doing business in the government as opposed to one-offs for each different project. That's an interesting way. So what, what do you think is next? What are some of the challenges facing the Trump presidency in this area, and what path should they take going forward? Well, it's not just the Trump presidency, but OMB, when they, they got this, this all this stuff put in place, and then they started looking at it and found that there were no data or timelines for projects in the various reviews. So part of this is establishing data standards and metrics, et cetera, to track the project review timelines. And this sounds mundane, but if you look at uh, the cross agency just between the Veterans Administration and the Housing and Urban Development Administration, when they were trying to deal with veterans' homes, it took them almost a year to agree as to what a homeless veteran was for the metric so they could measure progress. Here, you're dealing with over a dozen agencies and with all different kinds of projects, whether it was waterways or solar or highways, et cetera. So developing these metrics is is not an a inconsequential task, and it's something that's going to face the incoming administration, and it's not going to be... Uh, a glamorous thing. It's just really getting down on the weeds. But if you're going to invest a trillion dollars into infrastructure, this is some of the the grunt work that needs to be done in advance. What is the shared services cross-agency priority goal? We'll explore this question and so much more when the Business of Government Hour returns. What are the strategic priorities for the Defense Health Agency's component acquisition executive? How is DHA changing the way it acquires products and services? Join host Michael Keegan next week on the Business of Government Hour as he explores these questions with Dr. Barkley P. Butler, component acquisition executive at the Defense Health Agency, next week on the Business of Government Hour. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. 
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. So, John, the next cross-agency priority goal I want to talk about is the one dedicated to shared services. And again, like we've done with the other uh, cross-agencies, I want to get some context. And so what is shared services? And perhaps you can provide some context as to its evolution within the federal government. This is something that, again, is done in the commercial world uh, extensively. And in the federal government, it's been through a number of iterations and called different things over the past two or three or four decades in some cases. Uh, probably the earliest uh, example is uh, shared payroll services that the Department of Agriculture uh, offers. It, it does the payroll processing for a number of agencies. And they started this like back in 1973 just for the different units within the Department of Agriculture. And they've since extended to that service to other federal agencies. The idea of shared services is when agencies move their common administrative functions to somebody else and they just pay them for, for doing this. This could be done by another agency. It could be done in the private sector. Uh, the Bush administration was strongly ad advocating it being done in the private sector and there was a lot of pushback by unions. But this is being done commonly now within the federal government. But they were, again, these were one-offs. There was no systematic uh, uh, approach to it. Um, in a, a study by the Partnership for Public uh, Service back in 2015, um, they looked at the history of this. Uh, back in the 1990s, when we were doing reinventing government, we had something called franchise funds. In the early 2000s, the Bush administration created something called lines of business. So this notion of having common services provided by a central provider uh, or a common provider is uh, something that's evolved over the years. The concern, at least in the reinventing government days, was you don't want to centralize into one provider because then you're creating a monopoly. But if you have several providers, then there's some trade-off. But there's also uh, you don't have a, a, the uh, case of a single point of failure. So you have it creates some redundancy is actually good. Complete efficiency can can uh, be problematic. Uh, that's risk management. <laughs> but anyway, in uh, uh, 2014, shared services was designated as a top management priority goal, a cross-agency priority goal by the Obama administration. And so there's been a lot of attention to this. And the Office of Federal Financial Management and the Office of Management and Budget has been sort of the key champion of this along with the General Services Administration. Yeah, so you know, you kind of hinted at this, but what what were some of the trends that prompted the use of shared services, and what are some of the key obstacles to realizing the benefit of shared services? One of the things is is that agencies have been historically reluctant to give up something that is core to their being able to get stuff done. You know, if you want to make sure your employees get paid, or you want to make sure that there is the their ability to to do the travel that's associated with their work. Uh, 
and and you want to make sure their promotions are, are processed on time through the HR system. So agencies want to make sure that that you know this is something that they had some control over. But if you stand back and look at it from the bigger picture, they don't have their own electrical systems. They don't have their own water supply systems. They don't have their own internet systems. They use what's out there. And so the goal is to sort of get agencies to stop thinking about, I need to own this, to I need to be able to have access to this. And so that's kind of where where this has been going. And part of the push on this is that the cost, uh, the budget constraints that agencies are facing and the cost of some of these services mm-hmm. is becoming unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And the technology is uh, to the point where there's a lot more confidence that you can let somebody else do this because the technology and the processes uh, exist, and like cloud services and, and the uh, – the, and the third thing is that there's a loss of uh, administrative talent in a lot of these agencies as people begin aging out is they're not being replaced with other people. They're being replaced largely with computers or uh, technology. Uh, so so these different trends have sort of pushed agencies more in the direction of seeing shared services as something not to be afraid of but rather to embrace. Yeah. I mean, would you tell us more about the different models for how shared services are organized and delivered? Yeah. There, there's not any one approach, uh, which I thought was it was interesting. Uh, and this is, comes out of some of the studies that the Partnership for Public Services has done. Um, there's basically four models. Uh, some provide multiple mission support services but only inside their own agency. Another is uh, some provide multiple mission support agencies but allow other agencies to to purchase from them. A third is where uh, a shared service focuses only on a single line of business like payroll or finance or human resources and they only provide that to a range of agencies. And then finally, uh, and it's less common, but but there's more opportunity, is a shared service focusing on the delivery of missions, uh, uh, mission delivery. Uh, one example might be uh, benefits determination for you know the, you can uh, benefits determination process would be it varies between veterans benefits and social security disability benefits, but the notion of a process around uh, benefit determination. And it, that could be immigration supports, et cetera. So there's, there's some commonalities that in the future uh, might be uh, considered, but right now are, are very uh, uncommon. So, you know, you, uh, OMB sponsored a report in late 2015 uh, to develop an as-is baseline description of shared services initiatives in five areas. What are those five areas? But more importantly, what lessons were learned? Well, the, the study... Uh, Talk to, they, they talked to like 160 people in and like 26 different agencies to find their insights as what elements need to be in place and what would it take to actually go from a pilot project, project to, to scale. Uh, the five areas were information technology, human resources, acquisition or procurement, financial management, and grants management. And these link back to the major lines of business that, that uh, uh, the government's been looking at. Uh, some of the uh, things uh, that came out of it was the importance of ensuring consistency, quality, and levels of service. I mean, that's what anybody wants if you're going to have a, a service provider. The other thing is they found that it was important not to have a point solution 
to a specific problem, but rather have an integrated solution that ties things together. So it's not just financial management or grants management, but it's sort of looking at how those tie together. And that, I thought, was kind of a, a, an interesting insight because it means that it's not just shared service for one thing, but rather a shared services environment. Uh, they found in the interviews that there was a value of standardizing administrative processes, uh, the need to define, decide up front what should or shouldn't be part of a shared service. For example, it might be appropriate to outsource repetitive things like payroll or um, leased auto fleet management or something, but keep in-house qualitative services like recruiting or clearances or something. So, so there is this distinction of what is core to your mission versus what uh, could be done commonly. The other is to focus more on outcome requirements, not on technical requirements. So it's not having necessarily Microsoft Word, 10 point, whatever, but rather that you need this particular kind of capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what they've done is they started with the results of the cross-agency benchmarking survey, and, which is another cap goal that I think we'll have a chance to talk about, and use that as a baseline for evaluating does this make sense and will it, is it cost-effective for me to move to a shared service environment? Well, there's been significant progress, as you point out, in recent years expanding the use of shared services. Some key challenges remain in order to take the shared services initiatives to scale. Could you outline some of them? Sure. I mean, one of the things is that there it doesn't exist the legislative authority to for a shared service provider to sort of what have what we would call retained earnings. And anyway, and basically it's money that you set aside to refresh your technology or in order to expand to uh, your, your services and functions. And in order to be able to go to scale, you need to be able to have that ability to charge your customers, current customers, for future services, not just for uh, the current services. Um, what's interesting is some, some studies have been done and found that basically 70% of what could be done to go to scale, can be done administratively, but the other 30%, which is kind of crucial, would require some legislation. In fact, there is an um, an, a advocacy group that's been created in the private sector to um, push for this. There, it's called the uh, Shared Services Leadership Coalition, and they're sp- helping support the legislation uh, that would be needed to be able to, to uh, go to scale on some of this stuff. So, John, uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time today, but uh, this has been a very insightful conversation. Uh, I want to thank you for coming in. You, you do have another uh, piece on another cross-agency priority goal on benchmarking and improving mission support functions. Uh, you can read all of your uh, blogs on the five, on your exploration of the five cross-agency priority goals, four of which we discussed today at uh, businessofgovernment.org, uh, the Business of Government blog. John, thanks for coming in. I want to do this more often. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, this has been a great experience. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation on the importance of cross-agency priority goals with John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
What are the strategic priorities for the Defense Health Agency's component acquisition executive? How is DHA changing the way it acquires products and services? Join host Michael Keegan next week on the Business of Government Hour as he explores these questions with Dr. Barkley P. Butler, component acquisition executive at the Defense Health Agency. Next week on the Business of Government Hour. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m.